we have this shepherd sharing once a year for so many reasons. But one of the reasons is to show everyone at Cornerstone that the unity that we have as leaders is not a paper unity. It's not a theological or just merely a doctrinal unity. Yes, that's there. That is the foundation of our unity. And yet the unity that God has wrought and the leaders of Cornerstone goes even beyond the gospel. It goes to um, love for Christ and love for Cornerstone. That's what really binds us together. Each shepherd has come up and they've shared with you how much they love the church. And by their lives, we know those aren't just empty words. Those aren't just sentimental things that they say just to make them feel good and us feel good. It is proven by their lives. And so that's the unit that we share. We all love this church so much, and we are laboring that the Bride of Christ Church Cornerstone will be without spot or, spot or blemish on the day of Christ. When we present Cornerstone to Christ, that is our heart's desire, that Christ be pleased with the Bride here at our church. Oh, where do we get this um, unity, from, this mindset from? this commitment to right doctrine and right life, this commitment to, uh, to be devoted to, the love, to, to love the local church, we got it from the apostles. We got it from the Apostle Paul. We're currently in our study where we have examined uh, the life of the apostles because the Bible calls us not just to be devoted to the apostles' instructions, their theology, their doctrine, More than that, the Bible calls us to be devoted to their practice, their lives. Reformation is not just going back to the Scriptures, but going back to the Scriptures for theology, but going back to the Scriptures for life as well. Go back to the Bible and reclaim God-centered theology and God-centered living. So that's the full meaning of Cornerstone Bible Church. The Bible is in the center, not just in our minds, but in our practice. And that's what we're striving after. That's what we want to be known for. That's what we are all about. Not just the knowledge of the Bible, but the active practicing, applying the Scriptures to our lives. And that begins with the leadership. That begins with the elders and pastors of our church. And this is what we are striving after. So we've looked at um, previously eight key marks of Paul's ministry, Paul's life and ministry that are worthy of our attention and imitation. My original list was comprised of 15 marks, but I cut one out so that I pray to finish finish today. So 14 key marks, brief review, reviewed together the eight marks that we've looked at thus far. The first thing we, that stands out in Paul's life and ministry is that he considered ministry to people as a privilege. And we see that in chapter 1 where he gives thanks for the people whom he is serving. So for people, they were not a task, they were not a burden. It wasn't just work. Ministry to him was a privilege, so he thanks God for them. Secondly, ministry for Paul was life on life. He was not merely an instructor, or a teacher, or a professor. He was a parent, a spiritual parent in every way. So he shared not just the gospel, but he shared his life as well. And that's what we're endeavoring to do. Where shepherds come up and we share about ourselves. Why? Because we want to have a relationship with the people whom we are serving. We want to have commonness, not just in doctrine, but in our lives as well. And where do we get this from? We got it from the Apostle Paul. Thirdly, Paul sought to model the truths because he wanted the church to be a model church. So if you want to raise up model Christians, you have to model truths. The most powerful, effective means of teaching is to model, to be an example of the truths that you are teaching. Hypocrisy destroys instruction, undermines instruction. What gives power to instruction is to be an example of the very truths that you are teaching. And Paul uh, sought to do that. We seek to do that as well. Fourthly, Paul was faithful to boldly minister in the midst of personal pain and loss. He openly shared the persecution, 
that he endured in Philippi, how he was shamefully treated, how he was beaten, how he was arrested, how he was chained to the wall. In that kind of context, with scars on his body and his face, he came to Thessalonica and he ministered to them, and he didn't hide his pain from them. He shared his pain openly. Because ministry to him was personal. That was the model that he had set for us because that was the model that Christ set. Christ didn't hide his scars. Right after his resurrection, he showed his scars to his disciples. He showed his shameful scars to Thomas. Likewise, we are to do the same. We're not to minister hiding our blemishes, hiding our weaknesses, hiding our even our sins. We minister without fear. This is who we are. These are all our blemishes, all our weaknesses. Please don't judge me. Right? Don't judge us. Let's humble ourselves, pursue Christ together. I, I, I confess, we all confess our sins to one another. Let's be about the business of growing in Christ in light of all our weaknesses. Paul was not motivated by personal gain. We find that the fifth mark. He had no... Uh, side agenda and ministry for the gospel. He was doing it for the Lord and because he loved the church. Sixthly, he was gentle and gracious and a kind leader. He, the metaphor he employs to show how he ministered was a nursing mother tenderly caring for her child. So Paul was not this, this uh, harsh, dictatorial despot where people were walking on eggshells around him because he was so strong-willed and so stubborn and so harsh in his manner of ministry. No, people wanted to hang out with Paul. They loved to have him. They loved to come over at his place. Right? They loved to hang out with him and, I don't know what sports they played there, but maybe flag football with Paul because he was so gracious, so kind, so tender-hearted. And where did he get this from? He got it from Christ. Right? The tax collectors and sinners, the prostitutes, they loved to be with Christ. Because his heart was so gentle, so gracious, so tender. It was like being with mom. Right. Number seven, First um, Thessalonians 2.8, so being affectionately desirous of you. So Paul not just loved Christians, he, he liked them. He personally cared for them. So loving people is Christianity 101. You want to minister in the church. You want to serve one another. You want to be a believer. Loving, Christ, loving one another is like page one. It's the table of contents. It's the cover. You don't, we don't get any you know, uh, merit badges, brownie points for loving one another. That's a command of God. We need to, if we don't love one another, then we, we don't love God. right? How can you love God whom you have not seen when you don't love fellow Christians whom you have seen, created in God's image? But effective ministry goes beyond just love for people. It goes to intensely liking people personally caring for one another. And that is a challenge. That is a challenge. I care for my kids, you know, during my, my wife's bed rest, love my children. Sometimes it's hard to like them. Right? All the moms, let's lift our hands, you know. Dads, I know what you guys are thinking, but it's hard sometimes to like them. Sometimes I'm like, can you go sit over there? Or I need a break, I need to go out or something. I know you need to go out and get a break, but that's the challenge. All parents love their children, but you know what? Not all parents like their children. That's a challenge. All pastors, all ministers must love the church. They must go beyond that if they want to build up a God-honoring church is to intensely like them, personally be invested in them. The rest, 8 through 14, these are demonstrations. These are proofs that you like the church, that you personally love and care for the church, 8 through 14. So if you love the church, you'll work hard. You'll be a hard worker. You'll go the extra mile. If you minister as a duty, as an obligation, you'll just do the status quo, bare minimum. But if you love the church, if you like Christians, then you'll bend over backwards. Years ago, I was at a camp. They made us run in the morning. Two miles calisthenics. I don't like running. I hurt my back. I told the leaders I can't run because I'm hurt. Great, you rest. Everybody else is running. That afternoon, they're playing basketball. Like 90 degree weather, I'm out there playing basketball. And the leaders got all angry at me. 
I thought your back was hurting. You couldn't run. Yeah, my back is killing me. I'm hurt right now. But you're playing basketball. Yeah, I love basketball. I don't care if I'm hurt. I'd still play. I mean, I played ball in like 100 degree weather in the heat of the sun, noon. I played basketball with Rex in the rain. While it was raining, we're playing basketball. Why? Because I love basketball. Right? I don't like running. So if it's a little warm, a little cold, a little you know, cloudy, a little bit of dust in the air, I can't run. Right? Our heart condition dictates to us how hard we labor. So if we love, if you love your flock, you know, you'll, you'll go that extra mile. If you, if you don't, then you'll, you'll do the bare minimum. So for Paul, right, he went the distance because of his love for the church and future Christians. I endure all things for the sake of the elect, Paul said. Everything I do is for the elect, for the church. Number nine, I'll spend more time on some and the others just to get through these. Number nine, Paul did not take advantage of others. Take advantage of others due to his spiritual position over them. Paul did not take advantage of others because of because of the position that he had over them. Let me explain this. Spiritual leaders have a unique influence over Christians. They have unique God-given influence and authority over believers. So, God-loving Christians, Bible-believing Christians, have a God-given desire to please the spiritual leaders that are placed over them. A God-given desire. So if you're a good Christian, you want to please your leaders. That's a good thing. So all the more spiritual leaders must take care not to take advantage of them. Right? Not to cross the line. Not to be a burden to them. I saw this firsthand. Well, actually, my wife showed it to me. Uh, we're playing Settlers of Catan, another board game right, that was popular here at Cornerstone. So I was playing, Surin and I and Min and Shane were over, Shane and Min were over playing Settlers of Catan. And we're playing, and I'm winning. I'm just like, yeah, that's my game, right? And then Surin's getting angry because she's losing. I'm like, Surin, don't be, you know, poor sport, right? <laughs> sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You made some bad moves, you lost. Deal with it, right? I'm just better at this game than you. <laughs> What's the problem here? So after she, after the, you know, Min and Shane leaves, Surin's like, James, it's so unfair playing with, with you guys. I'm like, why? So James, those guys trade with you, right, on on unequal value because you're you're a pastor and like they want to please you. <laughs> I'm like, what? That makes I won those games fair and square. And she's like, James, look, who would trade like three sheep for an ore, right, or three wheat for a sheep? Those are un- unreasonable trades. They did this because you have influence over them. I'm like, what? No, I won because I'm better. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that gave me like an inkling. And then a brother, a few years later, shared with me how he struggled with pleasing the elders and pastors of our church. And so I know it's a good thing. That's a right thing. So all the more as spiritual leaders, we must take pain not to use that God-given influence and authority for our personal gain, for our personal benefit. We must be cognizant all the more of their spiritual maturity. If they're spiritually young, we must be all the more careful. And if they are financially limited, we must be all the more careful. Right? Not to take advantage. That's what that's Paul. We don't understand why. But 1 Thessalonians 2 9 says, We work night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. He's talking financially here. He's not talking relationally. So relationally, I need to be a burden to you. If I'm a burden to you spiritually, relationally, emotionally, I, that's part of like Christian living. You have to help me carry my burdens. Help me to carry my weight as to help you. But he's not talking about spiritual burdens. He's talking about financial, physical burdens because he said, I work night and day to provide for myself so that I would not be a burden to you. Same thing with the Corinthians. But he tells the Corinthians how he robbed other churches to support, to minister to them for free. So Paul took support. 
Other churches supported him and he took it. But for the churches at Corinth and for Thessalonica, he didn't take their support. Why? Why well, I believe 1 Corinthians, because Corinthians was a rebellious church. A stubborn, rebellious, disobedient church. So he didn't want to be obligated to them in any way. And the church, Christians at Thessalonica, we're not certain as to why. It could have been they were spiritually young. Right? Spiritually immature. So you don't want to do that. Take advantage of young believers. Be dependent upon young Christians. Or they were financially limited. They were, they, were not, they were not rich. They were poor. So Paul took pains where he didn't want to burden them. He didn't want to take from them. He didn't want them to have any opportunity to question Paul's sincerity, Paul's motive in his life and ministry. Paul understood that the respectability of a man is directly tied to him working hard and providing for himself. Right? Respectability. And, that, and we can't... Respect, respect is earned. It's lost. It, it's, you don't inherit it. You don't, nobody can give it to you. And there is no subsidizing of respect. It's, it's just cold-hearted, black-and-white calculation... That's how people calculate respect. And Paul understood that respect in this world is gained or lost by your commitment to work hard and provide for yourself. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, Paul admonished them because he lived that life, he modeled to them, he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business. To work with your hands. This we told you. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This goes for Christians. And doubly, doubly so for spiritual leaders. For spiritual leaders. And everyone's calculating. We need to make it a point as spiritual leaders that we're not in any way dependent on people whom we're serving. Romans 13.8 Let no debt remain outstanding except the debt of love. So the people that I'm ministering to, that I don't owe them anything. If we were to stack it up, I've done more for them than they've done for me. I have capital with them. I have credit with them. I have trust and respect because I owe them love, but nothing else. I owe them love, but nothing else in terms of physical help, practical help, financially, materially. I'm always the the debtor, but not the debtee, to those who I'm ministering to, who are under me. Now, they grow in Christ, they're mature in their coworkers, like you know, Dale and I go, Hey, you know, Dale, you, you treat now, right? Where we split or I pay, you know, or Bob and I, we rotate and pay. Right? You know, some other guys, they're friends, they're mature, then we go back and forth. Because they're maturing in Christ. They're providing for themselves. It's their way of, of honoring our relationship. For our spiritually young believers, for those who are in need, all the more so we must not take advantage. I mean, I, 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 I receive this by faith. It's how the world works. It's, um, when things are good, nobody calculates. But when things go sour, people calculate. And you want to be above reproach. You don't want them to hold anything against you in your relationship with them. The best I can do is uh, a dating relationship. When they're dating and it's all happy, they're great. They're, you know, they're, they don't care who's buying, right? Who, who bought what gift. But let's say you break up. And the girl starts to think, you know what? You know, I I give him all these gifts. He just gave me one basketball, right? <laughs> you know, I took him out to Ruth Chris, and he took me out to McDonald's, right? And it causes her to be embittered against him, rightfully so. If that's my daughter, I'd be embittered. I'd be angry. Right? You took advantage. You're the man. You should 
take the lead. Same thing spiritually, right? In the church, where, where relationships go difficult, there's, there's conflict, there's difficulty. When someone under you calculates, you know what? This sister has been nothing but good to me. This brother who's been ministering to me, man, I made out like a bandit. I have nothing to hold against him or her. So I, I got to thank God. I got to humble myself and really consider uh, their counsel to me. If they're thinking, you know what, I think I'm taking advantage of. This person's a, he's always, you know, forgetting to bring his wallet every time we go out to, to eat. He's always like mis- misplacing his things and I have to spot him. That's going to cause a rift in your relationship and ultimately rift with the gospel, rift for ministry. And Paul was not about that. Paul was cognizant. And so he, he made it a point that he was not a burden to these believers at Thessalonica. Related to that, number 10, because he loved the Christians here, Paul strongly sought to be above reproach in his relationship with fellow Christians. Paul sought to be above reproach in his relationship with fellow believers. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. It's, it's the temptation here to take those three adjectives and interpret it separate from the clause that follows. We look at the words holy, we look at the words righteous and blameless, and it's easy for to interpret that to mean his piety, Paul's relationship with God. But that is not what Paul is talking about. He said, you are witnesses and so was God. How holy, righteous, and blameless we were in our conduct toward you. He's talking about not Godward relationship, but toward fellow believers, towards the church, referring to his duties to fellow Christians. He uses these three words. In his relationship, in his conduct towards all the believers, he was holy. To older and younger women, he had a holy relationship with them. With older men, a holy relationship. To younger men, a holy relationship. To women, he had a relationship that was righteous. Older men, younger men, a righteous relationship. And so when he was hanging out and ministering to women, he was blameless. In his mannerisms, in his idiosyncrasies, in his characteristics, in his relationship with the conduct towards them, in his etiquette, women saw him. Oh, there's nothing to hold him again. There's nothing. It's blameless, above reproach. So what women value is different from what men value. So when he was with women, and women value different things, in those matters, he was above reproach. When he was with older men, older men have a keener eye, a clearer sense of what's, what's respectable, what's, what's praiseworthy, what's honorable. And so men who are 10, 20, 30 years older than him, he said, Paul, Paul reproach, brother, in how you've talked to me, how you related to me, how you've showed me honor, even though I'm a younger Christian than you, even though I'm a slave, I'm a Gentile, right? in, in your conduct, in how you've Conducted yourself towards me and my family to my wife, above reproach. A younger man looking up to Paul, same thing, above reproach. In reference to all these duties, no one can bring a, no one could bring a charge against him. Every duty in his relationship to these to the church was faithfully performed. Not a claim to absolute per- perfection, but a claim to consistency of character and faithfulness to duty. Faithfulness to duty. Let's go to number 11. Number 9 was, didn't take advantage of people. 10, he sought to be an approach in his conduct, in his relationship with fellow Christians. Number 11, he provided authoritative exhortation, encouragement, and charged people he served. Chapter 2, 11 and 12. 
For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. He took them one by one. Exhorted them. He encouraged you, encouraged them, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Here is another proof of His personal care that He liked the church, that He loved and liked the church. Here at Thessalonica, each of you, each one of you, I exhorted you, I encouraged you, and I charged you. So there is, this tells us, there is a time for moms, mom-like ministry in the church, where spiritual leaders, we tenderly, affectionately take believers and, and humbly and kindly care for them, and we kind of put bandit on their you know, wounds, and we kind of you know, give them um, chocolate and chocolate chip cookies and milk, and we kind of cater to them. There is a time for that in ministry. But there is also a time, like a father, you know when your child is being unruly. You know a child is going the wrong way. You know sternness is called for. Not passivity. Right? Not, not flattery. Not catering. But sternness is called for. So Paul, like a father, right? he exhorted Parakaleo. He urged them. He encouraged paramuthos. He counseled them. And then charged matureo. He declared to them the word of God as a father. And that, that idea of father signifies the sternness of a dad, but also as a father to his own children. Right? As a father would discipline his own children and care for them in that same manner. Paul cared for his own, for God's people and his church by personally admonishing them in Christ. This is really a proof of um, of father-like love for the church. That's what Hebrews 12 says. If a father does not discipline his own sons, he's treating them as illegitimate children. A father shows his love as his own children by disciplining them. Same thing spiritually. So if you're a spiritual leader and you just say what is popular today, just positive things, kind things, flattering flattering things, then you are treating them as illegitimate children. But if you are admonishing them personally, taking pains, then you are truly treating them as your own. We experienced that in our family. Um, it's kind of embarrassing to share, but this is this is the truth. Like almost nine months ago, there was an emergency um, foster care child. Mom was doing drug drug rehab. She was, I think, two years old, neglected and abused. And they asked us, they begged us, if we could care for this daughter, this girl, for two months. And it was so hard for us because, you know, we had four, two, and one at that time. But because they, they begged, we brought this foster, foster child into our home for two months. And so for Serene, it was so hard every day trying to uh, manage our home and to care for this child. And we couldn't discipline her because she's a ward of the state. And so progressively, it got more and more difficult. After a month, it was really difficult for Serene and for, for our family. So I had to tell Serene, Serene, you have to relate to her with different standards. Elizabeth and Emma are our children, so standard must be high, and we must discipline them. Ethan is foster adopt. We're not sure what's going to happen to a lower standard. This girl, she's going to leave us. She's a foster child. We, we don't have the authority nor the power to discipline her, and so... We're just babysitting her. Just cater to her. If she won't sleep, she won't sleep. If she wants to watch TV, you got to let her watch TV. If she doesn't eat, like our children, they don't have an option of eating. They're eating, whatever we feed them. But this girl, she doesn't want to eat, and she, just, she doesn't want to eat. Right? Because although we want to, we're not her parents. Right? She's a, we're babysitting here. Well, likewise in the church, 
Are you just a, are you just babysitting? Are you you know are you loving the people and looking long term? So because you look long term, you are instructing them, you are admonishing them, you are correcting them, or are you treating people as illegitimate family members? If you are a member of our body and no one has corrected you. You know, I have to ask for your forgiveness. I have to apologize. Because that means we're not doing our job and we're not caring for you as we ought. You know, we had a brother in our church a while back. A while back. James, how come you never... You didn't correct me. You, you rebuked everyone else, but you didn't rebuke me. Okay, okay, come here. I'll rebuke you. <laughs> All right, come here. Now I'll rebuke you here. All right? But you know, I said, you know... My bad, brother. Right? It's not. It's because of my selfishness. Right? Or for Paul, um, he made it a point to be like a mom and caring, but also understood it was time for uh, to be a father and with sternness admonish them. Number twelve, chapter two, verse thirteen. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is that work in you believers. So he praised them, for when they received the word from Paul, they received it as the word of God, as presented by Paul, not as the words of Paul. So Paul sought to establish the word of God as their authority, not establish himself as the authority. So many spiritual leaders want to establish a personality cult because of their ego, because of their pride, because of their insecurity or fear of man, wanting to be glorified and worshipped. They want to establish themselves as an authority in, in people's lives. So they want people to be dependent upon them their wisdom, their insight, their thoughts, their ideas, rather than on the Word of God. So the counsel that they give, the message that they deliver, is not God's message, but it's their message. So that perpetually, they will be dependent upon them, not on the Word of God. But that was not Paul's pattern for ministry. That was not God's pattern, Christ's pattern. Christ said, everything I say to you was given to me by the Father. Because you want to establish the Father's authority in people's lives. And Paul would establish Christ's words as the authority. So for us, our desire, our, our pursuit is establish God's word as the authority in people's lives, not personalities, not individuals, not a group of people. Some people want to perpetuate the cycle of dependence. And these are, this is a mark of false teachers. A mark of false teachers. Leading people away from God's word and towards man-centered ideas, philosophies, or wisdom of, of this world. Paul was resolute in doing this. In Acts 20, when he left the church, uh, elders at Ephesus, he said, I commit you to the word of God, which, you, which can give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, to preach the word. The word of God is sufficient for all things. The Word of God is inspired by God, profitable for all things. Preach this inerrant, infallible, sufficient Word of God and establish this as the authority over people in the church. This is the mark of a good shepherd. Mark of a faithful minister of Christ. Mark of a good preacher. What's the what's mark of a good sermon? It's not how entertaining was it. You know, It's not how short was it, right? not how, you know, insightful or how, did, how well he knows sociology or psychology or he uses illustrations. A mark of a good sermon was, wow, he stood behind the Word of God and preached God's Word. I have a greater understanding of the Word of God now after that message. I have a greater dependence not on him, but upon the Word of God. So I want to ask you, when you give counsel to one another, do you pause and think to yourself, what does the Bible say? 
Do you counsel people biblically or unbiblically? I remember like people would quote back to me things that I said years ago, early on in my ministry. I was like, did I say that? Some of you guys have real good memories, and I hold you hold this against you. Right? But you guys have like you know photographic memory of things that I said and counseled. I'm like, no, that wasn't me. But back then, I didn't have this filter of the Word of God. Even to this day, I have to take pains where I'm not sharing my thoughts, my experiences, my personal opinions. I need to take pains. Well, God's Word says this. Right, let's, let's investigate Scripture. What does the Bible say? What does the Scriptures teach us? Right. I had a couple come to me for counseling, and they wanted counseling. And all I have given them is FOF, right? importance of doctrine, attributes of God, depravity of man, lordship salvation, because I want them to be dependent on the Word of God. I want to establish God's Word in their heart, and the authority over them and their marriage, rather than any insights that I have in my meager 10 years in marriage. Right? How, that's not beneficial. That's not profitable compared to the profitability of the Bible. Paul sought to do that, establish God's Word. Number 12, Paul's hope, Paul's crown, Paul's boast was in people. I love this. Chapter 2, verse 19. What is our hope? What did Paul live for? Paul lived for the spiritual growth of the believers of Thessalonica. That was his like longing. What do I want? What do I want out of this world? What What do I want out of my life? I want you to grow in Christ. What is our joy? What it makes me happy, Paul said, it's when you are walking with Christ. When you are happy in Christ. What is our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ? It's not the sermons that I've given. It's not the books that I've written. It's not this method of ministry that I've developed. My boast before Christ is our God's people whom He has served promote the godliness. Right. Saw this movie years ago. I'll never see it again. wasn't that good. I'm not recommending it at all. If you see it, you're not going to like it. Don't blame me. But this point is good. Yeah. Mr. Holland's opus. Right, you guys in that movie? All right. Don't see it. Right. <laughs> it's, what this guy, he's a, you know, what is he? He's a musician and composer. That's what he was. And he wants to write this magnum opus, this uh, this uh, you know, musical you know, writing. Right? I don't know what he writes, right? It's a composer. And I'm reading my notes here because I barely remember the movie. But you know, what that will make him famous. But he, you know, no one pays a composer to compose music. So he gets a job at a local high school teaching music to students to pay the bills. He's got a wife and. And a, and a young son. So he does it, and he teaches on the, on, during the day, and he writes at night, and his hope is one day I'll finish this uh, composition and make me famous. I'll be, I'll be so famous because this, this writing will be so popular, so great. Well, the movie goes on, and for 30 years he's a teacher, and he never finishes his writing because he's so busy teaching kids you know, how to play the instruments. And he retires at the end of 30 years, and he's all bummed out because his life is over, Never finished his work of you know music, and all he did was teach kids. So on the last day, it's a little bit emotional, you know, it's pretty good. Last day, he goes to his last day at work, and all his students are there, over 30 years who taught who, who he taught to play musical instruments, and they give testimony how you know, he taught me how to play the flute, but more than that, he taught me about discipline, and he taught me how to play you know oboe, right, or stroll, right. <laughs> But you, know, you taught me about, you cared for me, and you were concerned for me. And they turn around, Mr. Holland, you know, your opus is not some music you know, writing that you wrote, but we are your opus. Like what you did in our lives, 
This is your grand work. All teachers, you guys should maybe see this movie. <laughs> Inspire you, uh, you know, during the week when it gets hard. But the point is, right, his great work in life was not what he composed, but the lives that he affected, he built into in these students. Well, that one point I think Paul would agree with. But Paul, his hope, his joy, his crown was not his ministry It's not his sermon catalog. It's not the books that he had written. It's not the number of churches he had planted. It's not the kind of method of ministry, some insight into ministry. His hope, joy, and crown. We're Christians. We're people. As I said last week, for Paul, people were not a means to an end. Paul didn't see people as a means to an end for something else. But Paul... And what we're striving after is people are the means. You are the means. What is our work? What do we pour ourselves toward? What makes us happy? What do we live for? What is our longing in life? And in heaven, what will be our crown? Cornerstone Bible Church. right? Not the building. Right? Not the programs. Not our philosophy. The people here. Right? Number 13. Paul's, Paul's mood was directly tied to the condition of the church. Paul's mood, Paul's heart. He took ministry personally. Paul, after three months or maybe a year of ministry in Thessalonica, he had to leave hurriedly because of persecution. So after leaving Thessalonica, he wanted to go back and visit them because he did not know how they were doing in Christ. He did not know whether they were being devastated by false doctrine from within or from persecutions from without. He wanted many times to go to them to see how they were doing, but he was prevented from doing so. When he could bear it no longer, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, Verse 4, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were, we were to suffer affliction for this reason. Verse 5, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Because I was afraid that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Verse 8, For now we live. It's not if. Since you are standing fast in the Lord. We were alive before, but because of our anxiousness, because of our worry, because of our fear of your spiritual state, I wasn't living. My heart was brought down, brought low. Spiritual depression over your, not knowing how you were doing. But now that we know you are doing well, now we live. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul took ministry personally. And this is, you know what Dale fell in love with in 1999. You know what? The, The difference he saw at Cornerstone, one of the reasons was, Somehow, by God's grace, God moved Bob's heart and my heart to take ministry personally. We took it personally. Maybe a little too personally. Look back and we're like too raw emotionally. But when people weren't doing well, weren't walking with Christ, or were not faithful, man, we took it personal. It wasn't just leave, it wasn't just work for us. It wasn't just a title. It wasn't just a task. It was our lives. And we continue to do so. And this mindset continues this day for us and for all the leaders at Cornerstone. You know, early years, I think we thought about it. We tried to leave ministry at church. 
right? To leave it behind. And then we realize, no, you can't do that. You know, we, we leave our jobs behind. We leave our work at work. Right? We leave work problems at work. But that's not how Christ did ministry. And that's not how Paul did ministry. Paul didn't separate his personal life and ministry. For Paul, ministry was his life. So for me, and the pastors and elders and our shepherds, this is our life. Right? I, ministry is my life. I, my wife, I talk about you guys. With my children, I talk about you guys. And when we get together as leaders, we talk about the church. Right? When we're playing sports, in the middle of tackling, we talk about church. Right? <laughs> While we're eating meals, we talk about Christians. Cornerstone Bible Church, one another. Right? Because our heart is directly influenced, directly connected to how believers are doing in Christ. C.J. Mahaney has this sermon, has a theology on sleeping. And I was like, that guy's weird, you know? <laughs> like, I give a whole sermon on sleeping. I understand why. Because if you love your church, you lose sleep. And sleep becomes difficult. And you lose sleep over people because you're thinking about them, you're praying for them, you're concerned for them. And after a while, like, you lose sleep. Right? But that's one of the, I mean, the proofs of your devotion to fellow believers is that they keep you up at night. You don't stay up at night because of money. You don't stay up at night because Lakers are 2-4 and four in preseason. Right? You don't lose sleep because the upcoming elections. You lose sleep because your heart goes out to a believer who is in need, who is going through a difficult marriage, who is stagnant in their walk, struggling in their, in their relationship with people in the church, or they feel isolated in the body. So, faithful believer is personally invested in, in Christians' walk. Cries for them rejoices for them and with them, loses sleep and loses peace because of them, thinks about them, worries about them, repeatedly warns them, prepares them for what is ahead, wants to protect them. I wonder, I want to ask a few questions. You know, all the leaders here, for all Christians, do you involve yourself with the need of others? Do you care? Is your heart affected by fellow Christians? Or is your heart unmoved? You're just so absorbed in your own world, your own life, your own concerns, that prayer needs of others, difficulty has no bearing on your mood, on your heart, on your personal life. You just live a totally separated, segregated life. Or do you love one another where people are rejoicing, you genuinely rejoice with them? And if people are hurting, you feel that hurt. You feel that pain. You take it personally. It's like a family member going through pain. You take it personally, right? Likewise, in the Christian church, you feel the pain as well. Are you approachable? Do you seek intimacy? Do you seek to be involved in other people's lives? Again, do you seek relationships as an end in themselves? Do you seek people? Do you see people as an end of themselves? Number nine was not taking advantage. Ten, above reproach in relationships. Eleven, fatherly exhortation, encouragement, and charge. Number twelve, People are hope, joy, and crown. Number 13, uh, importance of our hearts and life direct, being directly tied to the condition of our people. The final one is God-centered prayer for the believers. The final mark worthy of our attention and imitation in Paul's apostolic ministry is when he prayed for people, it was God-centered. 11 through 13. Now may our God the Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the presence, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. We not only see that Paul's ministry was marked by tender care, but it was also marked by God-centered love. His prayer for them reflects a love that is centered on God. A right kind of love for the, for the church. It is the kind of love that is submitted to the will of God and which desires that people bring honor to God. His first prayer for them is for fellowship. The church is not his project, task, or assignment. He dearly loves them in the Lord. His prayer is to be with them. He longs to fellowship with them, to pray, worship, rejoice, and weep together with them. And he then prays that God might cause them to increase in love for one another. Then he prays that God might strengthen their hearts so that they might be blameless on that day when they stand before the risen Lord. When they stand before Christ, his prayer is that they will be blameless. So he has a long-term eternal perspective as he does ministry. He's not thinking short-term. He's thinking about that day when they stand before the risen Lord and they have to give an account for their lives. His prayer is, think of that day. And my prayer is on that day, you'll be blameless. And so I'm praying that you will live your life backwards. In light of that day, you will conduct yourself worthy in a manner worthy of Christ. Here we see a true pastor's heart. A heart that is filled with God-centered love for God's people. A God-centered love. Reformation is not over. We need to go back to the scriptures and recover the pure gospel of Christ. Not only that, we need to go back to the Bible and find the pure practice of Christ given to us through the apostles, their example set for us. So may we imitate passionately, not just their instructions, but passionately imitate their manner of ministry, how they modeled ministry to all of us. Let's be faithful to this and pass this down for future leaders of Cornerstone. Maybe someone will say in five years, five years from now, yeah, October twenty-eighth, uh, right? That Sunday, I remember Dale sharing and James, you preaching, and that was my first Sunday there, where I had just come to Cornerstone a few weeks before, and I saw a difference, and I fell in love with Christ, I fell in love with the church, and resolved to follow Christ's doctrine, but also His life. And I am united with you men and women, not just in paper, but in life as well. May we pass down our, 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 our warm love for Christ and His church by our doctrine and by our lives. May God bless our efforts in that way.